I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, we are live. Welcome to the uh, Tuesday Theology and Apologetics live stream. And today we are tackling an atheist video that is meant to say that the Bible has zero fulfilled prophecy. And in fact, the title of the video we're critiquing today is called Unfulfilled Prophecy or Unfulfilling Prophecy. Uh, and it was produced by a gentleman named Aaron Ra. Now, Aaron Ra, let me give you a really brief bio. He is the regional director of American Atheists, the organization, and he has a very large uh, YouTube channel, at least large for the kind of genre we're all in here, 185,000 subscribers, and he does a lot of um, different content um, with with his like YouTube channel that's focused on... Um, uh, evolution and creation kind of debates and controversies but what he did with this video is he entered into the issue of prophecy and bible prophecy so this is like something i like a lot and something i care very much about so we're going to be uh, jumping into that today let me give you a quick intro this is from the end of aaron's video and i want to show you kind of where he goes with his video so that later um you'll really get why this is so important so here's the outro from his video for the intro for my video. I asked Christians to give me their favorite examples of fulfilled prophecy. And the ones I just talked about were the best y'all could do? Nothing that was unambiguous, meaningful, or in any way helpful or compelling, nor that even met the minimum criteria required to be fulfilled. Christians brag that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, but if they're all as contrived as these, then it's no wonder the Jews are still Jewish. It's a wonder any of you still believes in God at all. So that's where he's headed with this video. It's about a 15-minute video. Um, and i got to tell you a little bit of backstory because this is really interesting. I'm actually a little bit involved in Aaron's original video. And I just say a little bit, but let me explain. Um, Aaron tweeted out in, on Twitter, on his Twitter account, he said, Hey, Christians, give me your best examples of fulfilled prophecy. And that was uh, this tweet right here. Um, I often hear that there were hundreds of prophecies supposedly fulfilled in the Bible, but I rarely hear any specific examples. So tell me your favorite one, citing chapter and verse, please. Now, I, I don't follow uh, Arn on Twitter. That's not an insult. I don't follow very many people, actually. But um, but then this is what someone replied. And this is uh, from a gentleman named Ichabod on Twitter. He says, hey, Mike Winger has done the legwork for me, and he linked my video from Ezekiel, uh, the prophecy of the destruction of Tyre in Ezekiel 26. So Arn was given my video, which is meant to answer objections and be a very strong robust case for prophecy as being evidence for God having spoken in the scriptures. Um, I then, after watching Aaron's video, the one I'm about to critique, I was like, hey man, do you mind if I respond to this and use footage of it in a video critique? And he responded, you can see down there, really, really tiny right there. He goes, you don't need my permission, Mike, go ahead. And I, and I applaud you, Aaron, because uh, I uh, think that that's right. Like it's a critique that shouldn't need it, but I'm just being careful because y'all know I want to be careful with what I do with my YouTube channel. So, um, uh, that's kind of the background. Um, Aaron was given my video, Ezekiel 26, in response to his request for fulfilled prophecy. Um, he actually talks about Ezekiel 26 in this video that I'll be critiquing today. And he totally missed my video or didn't watch my video or doesn't realize that I answered those objections in my video. So I would like to do this video now to bring out the both sides of the story um, because here's the deal. Um, Aaron's wrong, 
okay? It, uh, this is an issue of facts. This is an issue of truth, right? I'm not here just preaching at you. Like, the, in factuality, Aaron is just wrong about so many of the things he says. But I'm not just going to claim that. I want to show you that today in a reasonable and gracious way, but just, you know, jumping after truth. So, um, we're going to show you a clip right now of, of what happened early on uh, in Aaron's video. And before he even gets into prophecy, he does what I call dumping. Dumping is something that happens when you're arguing with someone and you just hit them with as many accusations as you can in as quick a time as you can. There's no way they could really respond to it, but it's, it makes you sound really right and them sound really wrong. And that's what he does in the beginning of his video. So I'm going to play some of the dumping so I can respond to those point by point and we'll look because here's the issue. So often with skeptics and atheists, when they're putting videos online attacking Christianity, they utterly ignore the Christian responses to the things they're saying. And even when they hear the responses, they tend to repeat themselves and act like they're in a vacuum and those responses never came. Um, one of my goals is to, with my content, pr produce not only the Christian side, but answer the skeptical objection. But the skeptics so often don't do this. They just offer their objections and they completely ignore the thoughtful responses. So let's get into both sides tonight. And donkeys can't talk. Whales are not fish and bats are neither birds nor locusts. Ritual spells won't purify anything, much less cure anything, because diseases are caused by pathogens rather than demons or curses. And looking at a striped stick will not cause a cow to conceive a striped calf. Dumping. So that's, I mean, that's what dumping is. I'm not saying you can't do that on a video, but you shouldn't do it when you're wrong. You should make sure it's correct and everything you say is accurate. On all points there, he's actually wrong. And because he's saying so many things that are attacking so harshly the scriptures, we, we need to go to red alert. So hold on just a moment. Red alert. So I have two reasons for red alert today. One is Aaron Ra's video, and the other is we just got a new kitten right here. This is our new kitty, and she is a, a monster. And I have no idea what she'll do to my live stream right now. So right now she's being mellow, but that very quickly changes into psychotic. Um, so uh, yes, we're thinking of naming her um, Mika or Arrow. Um, put your ideas in the comments. I'd love to have some ideas. Don't really know what to call her yet. Um, she's basically a little psycho, but she's cute. So let's get into it. Aaron's statements. He goes, snakes and donkeys cannot talk. And he quotes two Bible passages to support this statement. He says... Um, about the snakes. Obviously, we all know this is talking about the Genesis passage where um, the serpent comes and tempts Eve and he speaks to Eve. And I, I would just say, um, yes, snakes, plural. It's funny how the skeptics always pluralize these. It's not one snake talked one time being empowered by some sort of evil spirit. No, 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 no. It's snakes talk as if the Bible is a Jim Henson movie and animals are just talking all over the place. Um, but that that characterization where you blow out of proportion what the text says so you can attack it, this proves that the text can't be attacked if you take it on face value. So it's one snake that talks one time. That's what happens in the text of scripture. And we know this, Satan, this is Satan, um, you know, either either is the serpent, the, word, the Hebrew word is nakash. It could mean um, that this is an actual shining one. It may not have even been exactly a serpent. I'm inclined to think it was and he was possessed. But either way, the Bible's clear that there's a spiritual thing going on here. It is not an animal just talking like animals just normally talk. The second 
is the less known passage, and this is from Numbers 22. In Numbers chapter 22, 28, we read this. It says, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And so this is Balaam's donkey who talks to Balaam um, so that God can get a message through to Balaam. The thing about this is, is again, there are how many donkeys talk in the Bible? One, right? And how does it happen? It requires a miracle of God for a donkey to talk. Now, I think that here skeptics and, and Christians or atheists and Christians can agree. It requires a miracle of God for a donkey to talk. It requires some sort of supernatural being to make a snake make words in some sense. This is not a natural thing in any way, shape, or form. So here, we're really in agreement. Um, then Aaron, in his, in his dumping, he also goes into the issue of um, whales aren't fish and bats aren't birds. I haven't heard this one in a while, so I will admit I was surprised to hear him say this. Um, okay, let's look at the actual passages themselves. Um, we say uh, whales aren't fish. This is Jonah 1.17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And uh, Matthew 12.40, it says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And we would say here, oh, well, this obviously had to have been a whale, not a fish. The Bible's just wrong on animal classifications. There's, there's a problem here, though. Modern taxonomy, or the, the, the categories in which we put different animals, is exactly that. Modern, Western taxonomy. In Hebrew, in Greek, and in other cultures and times, they didn't class animals with the same terminologies that we do. Now, you know the Bible was not written originally in English. Um, I think maybe everyone except King James knows that. <laughs> so it was, I'm joking there, obviously. But in, uh, in Jonah 117, it's written in Hebrew. And we have, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Well, what is the word fish? Well, I looked up in, um, in the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, Hebrew. Yeah, that's the name of it. Um, I looked up the, uh, the word, there we go. This is the word for fish. Ignore this text up here. This is wrong. Wrong. Okay, so the word for fish, uh, dog, is a class of animal that lives in a body of water, a general term and not a particular species or even size in meaning. That's the term used here in the Hebrew. That's the word, the dog or a dag. This means but a, a something that swims in the water. They could call it a fish. A, an eel could be called a fish by this definition. And we've got to at least let the Bible speak in the language it was written in. As far as the Matthew passage that he quoted and said, whales aren't fish, um, that's Matthew 1240, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. We translate that as fish here in English, but in the Greek, it is the word ketus or ketas. Actually, it's probably better pronounced ketas. Um, anyhow, it's any large fish or sea creature, and that's what it means. Any large fish or sea creature. Any, you know, a... Uh, a dolphin would be considered a ketos by this definition. It's used for the fish which swallow Jonah in the book of Jonah. It's called dag or gadol. But that sounds like sounds like uh, dag gadol, like something from uh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's the idea. I mean, this is pretty simple stuff. Like this is the, um, by the way, I'm quoting here from the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament, which is easily abbreviated, W-S-N-T-D-I-C-T, in case you just want to, I don't know, look that up. Um this is this is just doing the homework of saying, hey, it says fish in English. What did it say in the original language? Sometimes we have words in original languages that don't translate easily to a word in the new language. And it's like this with the word hand, 
right? Jesus is, he, they, they, uh, they drove nails through his hands and they're like, hands are here, but some people say the nails were here. Well, in Hebrew and Greek, the word used to describe Jesus in this passage would refer to anything from this part of the hand to the, to the fingertip. So they have a word for this in the other languages, but in English, we have no word to describe this entire section. I got forearm, wrist, hand, palm, but I don't have something for that whole section. It's just an English issue is what it is. Um, then finally, he says, bats aren't birds. Bats aren't birds. And this is, I've heard this for years, uh, this bats aren't birds thing. In Leviticus 11, we read this. Um, and these you shall detest among the birds. That's the class of animal you're to detest. They shall not be eaten that are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven, basically everything that's like a, a scavenger. And then finally, as you get down to verse 19, the second highlighted word there, it says the bat. But wait a minute, birds, bats, birds, bats, bats aren't birds, Mike. This is clearly the Bible doesn't even understand basic taxonomy. Actually, basic taxonomy was just different back then. The word in the Hebrew here is the word alp or alf or op or ope or hope or what? No, I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, you guess exactly how to pronounce this word. My, my Hebrew is not so good. But it basically means a winged creature that can fly both the clean and unclean, it's used for winged insects. Insects. So a locust with that flies, this is considered an op or ope. That's considered the same thing. This qualifies for that. So what we have here is a failure in the English language to have a word for winged things that fly. We don't have an English word for that. So in Leviticus, the translators put birds because it's the closest English equivalent, even though it's insufficient. So do you see the the dumping the dumping goes on and um, when you when you actually stop and slow down and analyze the things and you just ask like hey are my criticisms against the Bible are they valid or is it basically like a type of um, constant misunderstanding and misrepresentation that that one skeptic passes on to another repeating each other but never double checking their work and that's what I usually run into. He also says uh, in his dumping session here, before he even gets into prophecy, he says, rituals and spells won't purify or cure anything. This is what he says. Uh, now, the funny thing is, is that the, the rituals weren't said to cure illness. Like in the scriptures, the rituals themselves were not said to cure illness. This was not a claim that the Bible made in the first place. So it seems odd to attack the Bible with it. Rituals don't cure illness. What was the ritual for then? Well, for instance, in the case of a leper, and Leviticus 14 is the passage that Aaron uh, brings up. In the case of the leper, it's after the leper is cured of their skin problem. And that word leprosy was used for a variety of skin problems, not just modern day what we think of as leprosy. Um, but when their skin problem went away, then they went through a ritual to declare them as clean or pure. Why did they go through a ritual? Because, get this, there were quarantine laws in the laws of Israel. You have mold on your house, you got some weird growth on your skin, you have some weird disease, then they would quarantine you to keep you away from the rest of the people so you wouldn't spread this thing so it wouldn't turn into a plague. This is what? Well, this is like a ritual quarantine that ends up limiting plagues. Like, I'm not saying the Bible's therefore true, but at least acknowledge that this is a good thing. Um, in the in the in the law of the Old Testament, they were required to take their forgive me, but take their poop 
outside the camp, like not take, you know, I mean, go outside the camp to take your poop. I'll put it that way. And they, they were, they were told they had to do this. And this is something that even in the civil war caused problems in the American civil war troops would, would defecate right by the tent. And then it would increase infection rates and things like this. So here we have the Bible giving some really smart stuff. Um, there, it, it is, it was saving the people, the, the rates of, um, exposure to the plague during the black plague in Europe, uh, the rates of exposure amongst those who stayed kosher or stayed at least to the Levitical, you know, rules of cleanliness, they actually were much, much lower rates of infection. And so, um, these are good things. These are good things, you know, um, so ritual and spells won't purify or cure anything. Well, it would pre be preventative. Actually it would. So that's not entirely true. Then he says, uh, um, looking at a striped stick won't cause a cow or calf to conceive, um, or a cow to conceive a calf. I'm quoting him here. Looking at a striped stick won't cause a cow to conceive a calf. Now, what's interesting here is this passage in the Bible is Genesis 30 verses 38 through 40. And it doesn't say that the animal looking at striped sticks made the animal conceive. And you, you're welcome to do your own homework on this because I want to move towards prophecy here because this is just the dumping. This is just the intro. We haven't even got into the into the serious content of his video yet. Um, but really what, what the Bible's doing is it's retelling a tale. Now there's theories as to why this may have helped or if it helped at all. The Bible doesn't say whether it helped or not. It just says this is what he did. Perhaps um, the they were born striped and spotted through a simple miracle in the next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 31. God takes credit for the reason why these uh, animals were bearing more frequently spotted and striped. And if you're like, why, why did it matter? Because um, Jacob, he was having his wages changed. He would get the spotted animals, then he would get the unspotted animals and unstriped animals. And his wages were changing as far as what animals he would get. And so God was making sure that the ones would be born that would increase his flock because God was with him. That was That's the basic point behind it. But in Genesis 31, God takes credit for this, so it very well may have been miraculous. The Bible never says the stripes made a difference. Uh, maybe they did. Maybe the uh, striped poles caused the the male striped calves to more easily be able to mate with the females because they could spring upon them unexpectedly in that. Basically, they were camouflaged in that environment. That That's a very naturalistic explanation of what might have helped. I don't know. Um, but at any rate, it's not what Aaron makes it look out look like it is. In fact, none of these things are. Every example I gave you from this, this quick clip, I'm going to play it again. I want you to hear it again. This is what he says. Now keep in mind the answers I've given you. Here's what Aaron said. Snakes and donkeys can't talk. Whales are not fish. And bats are neither birds nor locusts. Ritual spells won't purify anything, much less cure anything, because diseases are caused by pathogens rather than demons or curses. And looking at a striped stick will not cause a cow to conceive a striped calf. Okay, so what am I saying? I mean, I could go on. I could talk more about the whole idea of demons and stuff like that. Um, that, again, again, is just an exaggeration and misrepresentation of, of, I think, a biblical thing. But the problem here is that this needs a fact check. And if already, like... I'm not misrepresenting Aaron's points. Those are his points. Those are my responses. I played his points again for you to listen to. Already, Aaron has proven that he is not taking the Bible seriously enough to really think about it, right? It, the, the scoffing has set in, and there is not enough willingness to think about these things. So, let's talk about um, uh, science. <laughs> Everything the Bible says about any field of science is laughably and indefensibly wrong. Okay, 
everything. Now, this is a bold statement. I'm gonna, i got to play it again. Listen to how bold this is. Everything the Bible says about any field of science is laughably and indefensibly wrong. Everything the Bible says about any field of science, laughably. Okay, this to me is kind of a big deal. Um, there's several passages in Scripture that deal with scientific issues, and I'm just going to give a, a quick... Um, overview of a couple of them. I'm not going to get into any real detail here, but <clears throat> the Bible talks in Job about the water cycle. It very specifically mentions in the book of Job that the water's drawn up from the ground, that it's distilled into the mist and rain. It falls back down onto the ground. Now you might be like, well, what's the big deal there? Look, even if you don't see this as a miraculous thing, it's an accurate thing. That's the point. <laughs> the Bible talks about it accurately. The Bible predicts in Genesis 1 and then in Hebrews 11 that the universe had a beginning, that it it it's began to exist. It start, God created it. It didn't exist and then it did exist. And this has been confirmed through with the resistance of scientists in the 1900s. Um, it was then confirmed because the popular opinion of scientists was, hey man, no, the universe is eternal. But no, that was been confirmed. So you you to make such a bold claim, the Bible doesn't have one scientific fact, doesn't make one statement correct, is wrong to the point of folly. So, um, let's continue. Let's talk about prophecy, because that, that's ultimately what I'm really wanting to get at. Let's talk about prophecy. So, here we go. Specific prophecies, and I won't be able to get into all of them tonight, um, because of just how long it takes to go through these, these little snippets piece by piece. But we will do um, Isaiah 53, and we'll look at Psalm 22 in particular, because Aaron makes a number of claims that are simply untrue for me to be very gracious to him, or possibly outright lies. But you know what? I don't think, if Aaron, if you watch this, I don't think you were meaning to lie. Like, I don't think you would do that. I really don't. But the things you were saying about these prophecies are simply untrue, and you didn't do your homework and you've, and now like, I don't know, 80,000 people or something have seen the video and how many more people are believing things that are untrue. And that's unfortunate. So Isaiah 53, let's talk about this first one. Is again, talking about Israel personified and not Jesus. And Christians interpret this chapter as the Jews explaining why they rejected Jesus centuries before they ever heard of him and how they would eventually atone for their current faith by coming to believe in Christ at some point in their future. Seriously? But of course, Isaiah was not talking about why he didn't contradict himself and other Hebrew prophets. From the mainstream Jewish perspective, Jesus doesn't qualify as Messiah because he failed to do any of the things the Messiah was prophesied to do. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop in here. Um, Aaron's looking at me disapprovingly. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> what I want to do is, is answer, he made several different claims right there, and I want to answer those specifically. Um, okay. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant passage. It actually starts in Isaiah 52 verse 11 and it goes through Isaiah 53. And it's like, you know, this is the suffering servant messianic passage that is often read to people. I mean, you could read this passage to people and they're like, dude, that is so clearly about Jesus. But he says, absolutely not. It wasn't about Jesus. Everybody knows Isaiah is about Israel. Isaiah 53 is about Israel. Um, now here's where I'll, I'll say, first off, Aaron, you're just wrong. The you, Aaron does this throughout the video. He's like, hey man, the Jews know, Mike. The Jews know those prophecies aren't, and, you, and you've got to listen to the Jews. They know those prophecies are about Israel and not about Messiah. Um, except here's what Aaron, granted, you, don't, you probably don't know this, but it is a very new and 
very young idea that Isaiah 53 is about Israel. That is a very new and young idea, and it's largely promoted in response to Christians evangelizing and bringing the gospel to Jewish people. Using Isaiah 53, it's so powerful. So the question we should be asking is, did ancient rabbis, ancient rabbis, Jewish rabbis who were not Christians, but they were just, they were Jews, not Messianic, did they think Isaiah 53 was about Israel? And the answer is, out of all of the ancient rabbis whose writings we have, all of them, not a single one thought Isaiah 53 was about Israel. This is significant. It is a very modern and very new interpretation uh, promoted by people who were anti-Messianic. That's what it is. It's a convenient interpretation to get away from the obvious meaning of the text. <clears throat> and it, all you have to do is casually read through Isaiah 52 and 3, and you can see that the we is where Isaiah is talking about himself and Israel, and the him is about the suffering servant and what he does for Israel. It's very clear in the text. That's why no ancient rabbis thought that. The majority of the ancient rabbis thought Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. That's what they thought about the text, the vast majority. Origen in the second century is the first guy we hear who has a record of anybody saying that someone thought it might not be about Messiah. Just not that it was about Israel, but that it just might not be about Messiah. And um, and, and that was um, in the, the second century and He's, it's interesting, the passage, this is too much detail to get into in today's video, but Origen's actually quoting some guys who were not rabbinical authorities. He's just talking about Jews he ran into. And so that's interesting. Um, there's even some modern Jews and non-Messianic Jews who think that this passage is about the Messiah. Um, in other words, they don't believe in Jesus. Um, then he describes Isaiah 53 in a very strange way. He says that Isaiah 53 is talking about according to the Christians, that our interpretation is that the Jews are going to quote, and here's what he said, atone for their current faith by coming to believe in Christ at some point in their future. Like, you didn't get that interpretation from Christians. You made that up and you put it in the mouth of Christians. Christians don't think that people will atone for anything. Jesus has made the atonement. And they're not atoning for their current faith, which which, let's be honest, right, that terminology is meant to go, like, so you're picking on them for what they believe. Like, you, you don't understand a few things here. It's like, one thing is, modern Judaism is not biblical Judaism. Isaiah would not recognize the faith of modern, most modern Jews, rabbinical Judaism. That is a different, in many ways, a different religious system than the Judaism that existed in Isaiah's day. That's why it's called rabbinic Judaism, the destruction of the temple. They move away from having priests and having all that sort of thing. And they move to having rabbis who reinterpret the Old Testament and give it a new meaning. This is, rabbinic Judaism is not older than Christianity. It is a response to the Messiah coming. And for those who did not receive the Messiah, they started having to change things because of the unfulfilled prophecy and because of the destruction of the temple. But even today, there are many mess Messianic Jews. And Arne makes it sound like no Jews believe this, Mike. Like, you Christians, you Gentiles, you believe this stuff. Even the Jews know you're wrong and you're trying to use their book. There are hundreds of thousands and growing in number of Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews, both in Israel and in the United States and various countries around the world. And it, it's a growing number. Um, but then Arne made this statement. He said, and he put this list up, so let's look at his list. He says that Jesus fulfilled no messianic prophecies. And then here's the list. You don't get a time to read the list in his video, but I, of course, screen captured it, and here it is. 
His list is six things, and we're just going to run through a few of them at least. He says, Jesus did not fill any of these things, right? Look, I didn't make this up, right? Aaron's well-respected in the atheist community, at least by some of the atheists. And I'm just saying, you guys aren't paying attention. You hear someone saying what you like, and you just repeat what he says. Look at this. He says Jesus fulfilled zero messianic prophecies, and here's the example of the prophecies Jesus did not fulfill. You've already caught the first one, right? He must be Jewish. Do you really think Jesus wasn't Jewish? Yeshua? Like, do you think he wasn't Jewish? He wasn't a first century Jew? That's, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. Let's look at number two. Um, He must be a member of the tribe of Judah and a direct male descendant of both King David and King Solomon. I go, I agree with both of those. Does not the Bible have two different genealogies tracing Jesus's lineage through David and Solomon? Yeah, two different genealogies, probably one being uh, the genealogy of Mary and one being Joseph. Joseph would be like a legal genealogy and Mary would be a genetic genealogy because of the virgin birth. Um, So we have uh, Matthew and Luke giving testimony that that's exactly what he did. So how can you say he didn't? Now you could say, well, I think that they lied. Well, but but then say that they pretended he fulfilled prophecy. Don't say he didn't fulfill any of the prophecies. And he'll get caught out on this later because he's going to say Jesus didn't fulfill any prophecy. And then he's going to say they fulfilled it on purpose. And that doesn't work. Like you can't have it both ways. Um, he also, according to this, uh, he must gather the Jewish people from exile and return them to Israel. Um, I'm not sure which prophecy he might be referring to there. Um, Jesus will do this, of course. We're talking about his first and second coming, and there's a difference. And even uh, some ancient Jews recognized that there was lots of prophecies about Messiah and didn't expect him to fulfill every single one all at the same moment. And number four, he must rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And here you're wrong. That is not a biblical prophecy about Gosh, okay, the temple at the end of the Old Testament, like if you're a Jew and you have the Hebrew Bible, at the end of the Old Testament, was there a temple standing in Israel? Yes. So there was not a prophecy that he was going to rebuild the temple. Instead, the prophecy was this, and I'll read it to you. It's, it's from uh, Malachi 3.1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts there's other passages in the in the old testament as well that say this that the messiah had to come to the temple not rebuild the temple he had to come to the temple meaning that the temple the temple that was standing in the days of jesus in the first century if if prophecy is going to be fulfilled messiah has to show up and come to that exact temple this is one of the things that tells us there's a time limit for when Messiah can come. It's got to be before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple. Um, uh, Daniel 9 talks about that. There's various passages that talk about this. So so this is just not true, right? He must rebuild the Jewish temple. That's not true. He had to come to the temple that was already standing, and he in fact did. Um, And then he has to um, bring world peace. Actually, he comes and rules the world. Um, not quite exactly the same as bringing world peace. He's literally going to take over. We see this as his, at his second coming. And then number six, he must influence the entire world to acknowledge and serve one God. And I can say Jesus has fulfilled this. Like, hi, my name's Mike. My family's from Ireland. We worshipped pagan deities, but I worship the God of Israel because of Jesus. How many of you in the comments from around the world right now, like you guys, you're in New Zealand or, or you're in somewhere in Europe, you know, you're, you name it, you're in South America 
and and you're like, man, my, I I I worship the God of Israel because of Jesus. Jesus, this first century Jew, he has brought millions and millions and millions to worship the God of Israel. And so, um, Aaron's original claim, Jesus did not fulfill anything. Completely, completely false. Um, so false. But let's continue. Now we're going to look at uh, this video, which I'll be playing and pausing a bit. <clears throat> it's the same video, sorry. It's just a different clip for me. Um, this is going to give us Aaron's exegesis or eisegesis or bad Bible study of Isaiah 53. And we're going to look at these things in specific detail. So listen to his claims and then I'll respond to those. There are also important distinctions, like Jesus was never crushed and he never shut up kings because he was never recognized by kings and he never had any descendants. Okay, pause for a second there. Jesus was never crushed in Isaiah 53, 5. He, was, he never shut up any kings um, and then he didn't have any seed or descendants. And he's going to mention this descendants thing, I think, a, a bit later. But <coughs> um, was Jesus crushed? Okay, that's Isaiah 53, 5. Um, I think I'll... Let me see. I think I'm just going to bring that text up for you guys right now. Boom. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Was Jesus crushed? And in what sense was Jesus crushed? Jesus was crushed in probably two different ways that this, and you could look at, I did look it up in the Hebrew. Okay. The word crushed, it could mean humiliated humbled. It could mean physically broken, or it could mean like crushed, like someone rolled a steamroller over you. Although that's probably not the normal usage when talking about human beings, given that they had no steamrollers, right? So, but he was crushed. Like you've just, you've destroyed me. You've ruined me. That's the idea. Was Jesus crushed? Um, have you considered, you know, the cross, the piercing, the beating, the, the being traipsed all over the place, being stabbed and his blood pouring out? Um, yeah, he was crushed. And it says why? It was for our iniquities. So he's dying as a sin atonement on behalf of someone else. Then it says in 52.15, uh, the next verse he, he referenced, that Jesus, hold on, there we go, that Jesus, <clears throat> um, never kings never shut their mouths at him. And that's this, this phrase right here. They didn't shut their mouths because of him. This phrase, kings shut their mouths, what it means to shut your mouth is like when you go, like, oh my, oh, you're, you're shocked into silence. That's the idea of shutting your mouth in this passage. That's just what it means. So he says, kings were never shut up by him. That's what it means. It just means they were shocked by hearing about him, right? And they hear about it later. Notice they don't even see it when it happens. He shall, he shall sprinkle many nations. By, by the way, that is sacrificial terminology. The Jew would understand this. this you, you take the sacrifices, you take their blood, you sprinkle and that's for atonement or forgiveness and, um, or cleansing of some kind. And so he sprinkles, he's the one who, he's the sacrifice that sprinkles many nations, not just Israel, but it goes beyond. And so then Kings shut their mouths. They're shocked. When, when are they shocked for that, which has not been told them, they will see that, which they have not heard. They will understand. So it's like this delayed thing. It goes to the Jew first. And then when the kings understand it, they go, Whoa. And I could easily, you know, dip into history and find great Kings of the past who quote in admiration of Jesus and what he did. So they shut their mouth at him and they say, wow, Jesus, no one compares to Jesus. And it's not that hard to find those, find those quotes. So look, it's not my fault. Aaron picked prophecies that have been fulfilled by Jesus. He picked them. Um, but that's another example. <clears throat> he also mentions he, he won't have any offspring. And here, 
Um, RN's inconsistent. Let me see if I can find that spot in the video again about the offspring. Shut up kings because he was never recognized by kings and he never had any descendants. The word seed is consistently used in the Bible to describe offspring rather than unrelated followers of a precedent. So when Isaiah mentions seed, it refers to the Jewish children of Israel, not Jesus' followers. Pause for a second there because Aaron told us his interpretation of Isaiah 53 ahead of time, didn't he? He said Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is who? Israel. But now he's interpreting Israel is going to have seed and the seed is Israel. You can't have it both ways. Like, is Israel, Isaiah 53, against the ancient rabbis and against the ancient Jewish interpretation? Or is the seed ancient, is or, you know, future ancient Israel? <laughs> Which one is it? You can't really have it both ways. Um, but seed, referring to offspring, this is what the New Testament refers to when it talks about us being saved through Christ. We're born again, having begotten us again unto a living hope, the scripture says. And so we're his, like, I'm a child of God. I'm a result of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, yes, you, now you may not like that interpretation. You might think, oh, that's very convenient. And I would actually agree. I would say Isaiah 52 and 53 are so incredibly conveniently about, you know, applied to Jesus that that's how you know it's about him. It's so convenient. It's intentional. Um, but let's continue. And Jesus was never a mere servant of God like Israel was, so he was never beaten and afflicted by God. Pause. This is a, just a bold claim Aaron makes. And, and uh, by the way, one of the reasons why I'm doing this video, um, I actually had a parent send me this video and say, Mike, can you do a response to this? My kid, my, my, my young child, not little kid, but you know, like teenager, sent me this video and they're being influenced by this guy, Aaron Ra, and they're leaning towards atheism and skepticism, and I don't know how to respond to it. Aaron speaks with such authority and such boldness and rancor against the things of the Bible and the things of God. and if you don't pause him and stop and think about what he said, it can be very influential. But that's why we're going to do this, right? He, he just said straight up, um, Jesus was never a servant of God, and he was never struck down and afflicted by God, and therefore this can't be about him. And here I'm just going like, what are you talking about? Jesus wasn't a servant of God? Like, how do you justify such a claim? I mean, how do you justify that claim, that he wasn't a servant of God? You just claim it. You don't have any evidence to textually or in any sense. Jesus wasn't a servant of God. And he says, God didn't strike him. Well, the passage doesn't say God would strike him. Isaiah 53, 4, right? It says, he's borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. We accounted him stricken. We thought he was stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. This passage is saying that when people are watching him suffer, they think he's suffering because he did something wrong. But in reality, he's suffering because we did something wrong. So let me, let me take you again to the, to the text. Um, Isaiah 53, um, here's the passage he quoted, and let's just read the next verse to understand it in context. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, as in, it was what I did wrong, that's why he went to the cross, not because of what he did wrong. He was crushed for our iniquities, it was my sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is, um, yeah, this is about Jesus. And that's a rational perspective to have on it. Let's, uh, let's keep listening to what Arne has to say. Was. His life wasn't prolonged either, obviously. Nor did he share spoils with his peers because he didn't have peers. All right. 
Apollos. And so um, his life was not prolonged. He says, okay, I got, this excites me. I love prophecy and I love the Isaiah prophecy in particular. Um, Isaiah 53, what did it mean when it said that his days would be prolonged? What did that mean? So um, what happens to this guy? Let's just read the passage in context, right? So um, we'll start here in 5211. Oh, excuse me, 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. This is, again, sacrifice terminology, sprinkling many nations. So he will have a sacrifice. Jews never sprinkled many nations. The Levitical sacrifices only were for Israel, but here this guy's sacrifice is going to be something that will be for many nations, way beyond the borders of Israel. Um, then it goes on. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard they shall under they, uh, they understand. So this message of what he's done goes out to many people in many countries and many places, and that has happened. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So we have lowly beginnings for this messianic character. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom we, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So when Messiah comes, he will not get the glory he deserves. He's lowly. He's in fact rejected by even his own people. Verse four, <clears throat> surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is a substitutionary atonement. This is the theology of Christianity in the ancient 600 years before Jesus text of Isaiah. Um, then we go on. Um, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So his sacrifice will be for everyone's iniquity. Does that, who does that sound like to you? What theology am I preaching here? He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to what? The slaughter. The slaughter. It's a death sentence. This comes to what Aaron said about prolonging his days, so just hang with me here. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so we open not his mouth. But did he really die? Is this person supposed to actually die, die? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Now that phrase can only mean death. Cut off. Now, if you cut people off from Israel, you had to banish them from the land of Israel. If you cut someone off from your family, you have to leave, get them out of your home and they can't relate to you anymore. When you cut them off from the land of the living, they die. This is clearly a death thing. But it gets more clear because we're talking about a blood sacrifice, which was always a death. There was no living. No one lived after the sacrifice. And then verse 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So this Isaiah 53 character actually dies. He actually dies. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he makes, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Your soul is your life, right? Your, your life will be the offering for guilt. This is like, you should be a Christian because of Isaiah 53. I mean, it's just rational. Um, it blows me away. 
Um, so when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. When will his, long, his life be prolonged? That was Aaron's question. Aaron's question. You know, his, his days were never prolonged. Okay, it's after he makes his soul an offering and he dies, then his days are prolonged. What do you think that's talking about? That's about the resurrection. It's about his life after his death. His days are then prolonged. And now he lives never to die again. This is a resurrection prophecy. That's what it is. Um, and it's what it fits most easily into. And it, it goes on. Uh, there's just more cool stuff there. I'll just let you discover it on your own. Um, but let's, let's listen to more of what he says here. Oh, he also mentioned this. Um, Jesus didn't divide the spoil with anybody. Well, here's the spoil for Jesus. Jesus, he, he uh, comes in now because of his death resurrection. He's now exalted. He's made Lord of all things, uh, heaven and earth. Every knee will bow before him. And he says to those who come to him, you're going to rule and reign with me. You're going to be my, the heirs, the co-heirs of all things with Christ. That's the theology of the New Testament. Now you can say if you want, I don't believe the theology of the New Testament. That's fine. We can have a different conversation about that. But what you can't say is Jesus didn't divide the spoil because that is the theology of the New Testament. Let's listen in. Wasn't a conqueror with spoils to share like Israel was. So this chapter is not talking about Jesus. Most of it is in past tense, so it can't be a prophecy of any kind, which is why none of it is messianic according to Jewish sources. Isaiah never mentions resurrection either, which would have been the whole point of the story if it was about Jesus. So this chapter is obviously about Israel, just like it says, and can't really secretly be a prophecy about Christ. So he doubles down on his uh, previous opinions, right? This is this is definitely just about Israel. It's not about Jesus. It couldn't be. Um, he makes more statements. You know, nobody thought it was. It said it was Israel. Like, nowhere in the passage does it say Israel. It rules out Israel because there's the we and the him, and the we is Israel. The we is Israel. Um, read the passage. Just read it objectively. <clears throat> no ancient rabbis thought it was Israel. Uh, that's a modern interpretation in response to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And some wanting to reject it had to find a new way of interpreting Isaiah 53. And so he just, just, he just doubled down on everything that was not true. Um, so let's look at one more. This is going to be Psalm 22. Many of the prophecies that Christians point out as being fulfilled by Jesus or that were supposed to have predicted Jesus are either Jewish prophecies, talking about someone or something else, or they aren't written as prophecies at all. Like pretending that King David was writing about Jesus rather than himself. And David wasn't even a prophet, and his psalms are not considered prophetic within the Jewish religion. Yes, they are. And so, so let's talk about this a little bit. Psalm 22 is that great crucifixion psalm. This is the next passage he brings up. Psalm 22 is like all about, hey man, you know, the, it, it does have the passage which probably mo is most memorable from it. They pierce my hands and my feet. But it's actually the passage Jesus quoted while on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is him saying Psalm 22 verse 1, bringing attention to the psalm while he's on the cross, which is pretty interesting to me. Um, <clears throat> so first uh, statement he made is, okay, it's David wasn't a prophet. Um, David was a king of Israel and his, his writings are not classed in prophecy as in we have the law, the prophets and the writings. Um, so we're, we're not, we don't class him in prophecy in that section of the Bible, but he was believed by Jews in modern times as well to have spoken by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the Psalms even to be able to speak of future things. In fact, Psalms very clearly speaks of future things. It does make proclamations about what one day will happen uh, in several places. So this is just, Aaron, 
you're preaching to people who don't know the Bible and haven't read the book of Psalms. Um, it's just not true. Um, did anybody think it was messianic? This is the next question. Did anybody think that Psalm 22 was messianic, that it was maybe about more than just David? Well, there's a couple reasons why they did. Um, some, at least some people did. There's debate on this issue, right? But ancient Jews were on both sides of the fence here. The problem with David is that David never had an event in his life that looks anything like Psalm 22. So all of a sudden, Psalm 22 becomes this like really, really symbolic and really hard to interpret passage because he never experienced anything like this. And I actually have videos, by the way, I have videos on Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Ezekiel 26. All those videos are in the, in the description for this video as well as Aaron's original video, the one I'm responding to. You can listen to the rest of it. He makes plenty of claims I'm not responding to because I've just, I have to pick something to talk about. I don't have that much time. And, um, and yeah. But did anybody think it was messianic? Is Aaron right here? Well, it turns out that Rashi about, uh, says that Psalm 22 verse 7 specifically is about the Messiah. Now, now let me backtrack because I think Aaron laid a trap for himself. Psalm 22 verse 7, what is that passage? Remember earlier, Aaron said that Messiah was supposed to accomplish some certain things and Jesus did not accomplish those things. I say, did I say verse? I asked Christians to give me their favorite Shh, examples Aaron, of fulfillment. And many that. of the prophecies that Christians. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry, tech problems. I hit the wrong button. Um, so, Psalm 22, verse 7, it says. Um, right here, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. I, re I was referring to this earlier um, when Aaron was saying that in all reality, Jesus was supposed to cause people from around the world to worship God. Where do you suppose this prophecy came from? Aaron agreed that this is something Messiah is supposed to do. Well, it's in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations, these Gentile groups, they're going to worship before God, the God of the Old Testament, the God Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, um, the true God, that, that they're all going to come and worship. And that, that was expected to happen based on Psalm 22. I mean, Psalm 22 is one of the criterion that he already gave for the Messiah, whether he realizes it or not. Um, so that's one issue. Um, all right, back to that, that scene right there. Um, so... Rashi, he said, Psalm 22, verse 27, this is a, a well-respected guy. He says that this is about Messiah, that this is actually specifically about Messiah. So there's one ancient uh, Jewish rabbi who says, yes, this is about the Messiah, Psalm 22. There's a rabbinic midrash from the 8th century that says Messiah is saying some of the things that are in this passage. And let me read you a quote from this rabbinic midrash. This stuff's, if you're like me, you just love hearing this stuff, but they're not all in agreement. It's not as it's not as clear as Isaiah fifty three, not as not as unanimous like that, not at all. But there are ancient Jews that who believed, yes, this is about the Messiah. So here's what the the midrash said from the eighth century: It was because of the ordeal of the son of David that David wept, saying, "My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." So this midrash says, "Hey man, it was the son of David, because of his future offspring, son of David person. That's what." David was talking about in Psalm 22. Why do I say that? Why, what's the son of David's significance? Well, if you know anything about the Bible, you know son of David is a messianic title, one Jesus used for himself and one the Jews used to refer to that coming Messiah. Um, to Hosanna to the son of David. You know, he comes in the name of the Lord. All right, let's look at some more of the things about Psalm 22 that were simply 
not true. David is talking about being encircled by his enemies, hunting him with dogs, biting at his hands and feet. No, he's not. Okay, so in Psalm 22, it says, and this this is something I always have to explain. I understand people getting confused on it. Psalm 22 uses picturesque language, which is quite normal in the Psalms. And um, in, in Jewish writings, in a lot of ancient cultures, they refer to animals or refer to people as animals as a way of describing those people. So dogs have surrounded me. These are, these are like unclean people or, or lesser individuals. Dogs have surrounded me, but they're people, right? Uh, the Psalm also talks about bulls of Bashan. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. And these are talking about authoritarian type people. They're bulls of Bashan. They're not dogs. They're, they're bigger, they're stronger, and they're coming, they're surrounding me. So here we have like the Romans, um, the Roman powerhouses like Pilate and his troops. And we have the Sanhedrin and we have the, um, um, the Pharisees gathering, the high priests gathering together against him. Then we have the people, they're the dogs. That's the idea. And, and Psalm 22, 16 clarifies this. Dogs have encircled me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Why do I say this? Because Aaron makes it sound like David was saying he was being chased by dogs. And that's not, that's not understanding just the context of the passage. Um, um, it, you just, you have to learn how to read the text in its context. Uh, let's keep listening. In. And that may work from David's perspective, at least metaphorically, as he seems to imply it here. But it doesn't work in any sense at all for Jesus, now does it? And that's where he's wrong. Like, no, this works for Jesus. I just explained how it works for Jesus. He had a large group of people coming against him. If Jesus had died alone, quietly, you know, stabbed in the back somehow, but not surrounded by a group of people conspiring against him, then Psalm 22 could not apply to him. But it very easily applies. In fact, it applies to him way more than it could to David. But let's, let's keep reading. Now, this is the crucifixion psalm. I, I have a whole bunch of details about Psalm 22 um, in the video I, I linked in the description. But let me just give you the short, brief overview in case you're not familiar with it. Psalm 22 describes the act of crucifixion hundreds of years before it was actually invented. Um, it talks about how his bones are out of joint. That happens on the cross. Your, your shoulders and ribs and stuff get all pulled up and you get dislocated body parts because of it. Um, the fatigue and the beatings, um, the public execution the mockery, the, um, the gambling for his clothing. And you pretty much have two options with Psalm 22. Either Jesus literally fulfilled it or the gospel writers totally made it up to make it look like he fulfilled it. Um, and I think we have good reason to think that's not true. Um, it, lots of good reason to think that's not true. But what you don't have is the option Aaron's trying to take where he's going, it's just not about Jesus at all. Um, that doesn't make sense. So it does work for Jesus quite well. The whole Psalm does. So let's keep listening. Christians imagine this passage to be about crucifixion. This misinterpretation is based largely on a mistranslation. Okay, I got to pause him here because this this text is only going to stay on the screen for a second longer, and then it just disappears. Um, here's where the debate is in Psalm 22, and this this is this is really where the debate comes down. We already know bones are out of joint, dehydration, public casting lots for his clothing, multiple groups of powerful people, as well as the the rabble all gathering against him, and. Yada, yada, yada. Read Psalm 22. It's got all these different sort of points of correspondence to Jesus very specifically. Um, and I don't, if you're a skeptic, read Psalm 22 and ask yourself, let me come up with another form of death that fits all of these criteria just as well as crucifixion. I mean, just as a thought experiment, try and do that. Um, but he hangs his hat on Psalm 22, 16. And he's, and because this is the most obvious, right? They pierced my hands and my feet. And then he's going to point out, and he doesn't go into detail, so I'll go into detail. Um, some people believe that the phrase, they pierced my hands and feet, is not a talking about the crucifixion, the piercing of his hands and feet, 
but it's actually mistranslated. And so you have the translation he offers, like a lion, they were at my hands and my feet. And this has to do with literally like one letter in one word. And it changes the entire interpretation from either pierced or like a lion. So is it like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet, or they pierced my hands and my feet? Is either going to translate that word lion or pierced or bore through? And that's the question. But let's walk through this thoughtfully. Um, let's suppose that the skeptics are right and they say, hey, we have checked our Masoretic texts and the vast majority of Masoretic texts. This is the ancient Hebrew we have. They say, and now the earliest is from like the 9th century B or AD, so they're not that old, but, but they're the earliest we've got. And they say, um, for the majority, like a lion, they were at my hands and my feet. So let's just assume that this is true. That your bones are out of joint, you're casting lots for your clothing, you're dehydrated, your tongue clings to your jaws, your heart's melting within you, your, your, your heart's failing. All those same you know, symptoms are going on. And they're like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet. Well, what do lions do to your hands and feet? They bite them. Problem solved. Like <laughs> if a lion bites your hand and your feet, is this really that much different than having someone drive a giant metal spike through your hands and through your feet? It's really not that much different. I think the like a lion works perfectly well and it fits with the picturesque language of the psalm talking about animals. But there's another problem. So it, it does, it gives us crucifixion still. It's still crucifixion. It doesn't change anything. But there's a problem here, which is this. Three sources tell us that this very probably is the word pierced, not the word lion. So I told you the Masoretic text going back to like 900 years after Jesus, that text, it says like a lion for the most part. But some of the Masoretic texts actually do say pierced. They say pierced. Also, the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament into the New. But the Septuagint is older than the Masoretic text, the copies we have. So we have older Septuagint. Now, Septuagint's Greek. So this is when they took Psalm 22 and they put it in Greek. What did they do? They translated it as pierced. So the ancient translators, whatever text they were looking at when they translated Psalm 22, they translated it pierced, my hands and feet. And... We recently discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of you guys are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which goes back to the time of Jesus, and even some of the scrolls go before the time of Jesus, there is a, a copy of Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, how did, this is exciting, right? 900 years older than our earliest Hebrew, right? In the Dead Sea Scroll copy, what they have there is not like a lion, but it is bore through or pierced. They pierced my hands and my feet. So I have three good reasons to support the idea that it's pierced. And if it's not, it's still crucifixion because what else do lions do uh, to your hands and feet other than either bite you or stab you with their, uh, with their claws? Um, this is what's happening. So that was a mouthful. Um, is, let's see if there's anything else in this clip. I don't think there is. Which has resulted in a few other misinterpreted prophecies too. Oh yeah, he just goes on to some other content as well. Um, so... That's the meat of what I had so far. There's a lot more in Aaron Ra's video. My intention is to cover that next week because it, I just, as I was getting into it, I was like, this is going to be just too much content for me to cover in, in one sitting. So we'll do that next week. Um, <clears throat> but what I'd like to do right now is uh, go to your guys' questions. And, but first, I'm going to give like a, little, a couple closing thoughts uh, for Aaron and for anybody who's um, interested in kind of how I would summarize all this stuff. Um, um, I have... I've only taken Arn's, Arn's statements and analyzed them and analyzed them in context. I did not misrepresent him. I was very careful to not do so. 
but he has over and over and over again said things that are not true. Can can you consider him, if, if he's someone you follow, can you consider him a source that you at least need to fact check before just believing what he says? I think that's just at least a little bit of wisdom going on right there. And I want to point something out for the critics who might be listening. And you believed Aaron Ra's video and you thought, what you, what's Mike going to say? How, what would, could Mike possibly say against Aaron's ironclad logic? If you, were, if you came in with that attitude, my statement to you would just be this. Um, why is it that you believed Aaron's false statements with no critical thought and with no facts checking? But everything I say, I have to back up with evidence and fact and quotes and historical research. Why, why is it that he gets a pass on fact checking and I don't? Now, I'm not asking for a pass. That's not my style. That's not what I want. I'm asking you why you're so uncritical of the criticisms on Christianity, why you're so unthoughtful of the attacks against Christianity. I think you have, if that's you, if I'm describing you, you have a, I'm just speaking to you as a friend here, you've got a bias against Christianity and a bias against God that is causing you to be gullible to believe things that are not true. And that might be why Aaron was able to make this video is he just quickly believed whatever research he did on the internet, didn't check it, didn't make sure it was true, and then just repeated it. And now who knows how many thousands have heard that and are repeating it and sharing it with their parents. Look at this guy. He blew up the Bible. You know, how could anyone believe it? Um, I'm going to play for you again his intro. And then I'm going to go to your guys' questions uh, and I'll have AJ send those to me. If you have questions for me tonight, uh, put them in the comment section right now. AJ will send those to me. I've already got a few. <clears throat> but let me play again the outro for his video. After all of these false statements, this is what he says. I asked Christians to give me their favorite examples of fulfilled prophecy. And the ones I just talked about were the best y'all could do? Nothing that was unambiguous, meaningful, or in any way helpful or compelling, nor that even met the minimum criteria required to be fulfilled. Christians brag that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, but if they're all as contrived as these, then it's no wonder the Jews are still Jewish. It's a wonder any of you still believes in God at all. He's a guy who has a bunch of wrong information. That's what's really going on here. That's what's happened with Arn. By the way, um, when Jews become Christians, <clears throat> they're still Jewish. <laughs> no wonder the Jews are still Jewish, he said. They're still Jewish. You're a Messianic Jew. You're more of a Jew than you ever were before because you now have received the Messiah of the Jews prophesied in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> so you're, you're very Jewish. Um, all right, your guys' questions. Go into your questions. This is a question from Juan, uh, Juan Polgarin. Um, the question is, <clears throat> what's the atheist's best argument for not believing in the God of the Bible? Okay, well, I'm just going to say for, for the atheist in the, in, the, in the video or in the comment section, you're probably thinking, Mike is the wrong guy to ask. He's not an atheist. And, um, and there's probably some truth to that, right? I'm not an atheist. And so, um, but I'm going to tell you this. I think their most effective arguments, the most effective atheist arguments are sarcasm and misrepresentation of Christian truths. And so, like, attack God based on, like, say, hell or something like that. And I'm going to misrepresent and I'm going to give you half the story so that I can make God look bad. Um, or the problem of evil, like basically, the problem of evil blows me away because it's really effective for people, right? It stumbles people to think, well, how could God allow so many bad things to happen? But, but they don't consider that what they're really saying is, um, I will either now believe there is no God 
because of how I feel about what I think is going on in the world, because of how I feel about what I think is going on in the world, in spite of the fact that God tells me that he's involved and that things will be so much better in the future, I'll just ignore that. Um, and I won't trust him, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to either disbelieve that God exists altogether or, and this is an option people really think is good, is they go, yeah, God really is evil. Like God must not care. He must be an unloving and evil God. And then they put themselves in this really weird position where they honestly think that they're more moral than God. And to me, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say, I think that that's an insane position to hold. I think that is not sane to think that it's even logically possible for you to have moral values that are better than God um, and higher than his, his goodness. Um, but, any, but I think that those are the most effective arguments. It's usually sarcasm, misrepresentation, a lot of dumping that goes on. That's That would be my opinion about it. Um, also, they take advantage of people just being a little naive um, about their faith as Christians. And um, um, But yeah, I'll, I'll move on to the second question here. This is from Decided Scroll. Could you ask Mike if he knows why Matthew 26, uh, 23 and John 13, 26 differ? Um, I'll say I will happily look those up, but I can't tell you off the top of my head, what I think about those passages. So Matthew 26, 23. And this passage says, uh, he who's dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And of course, this is the last supper and Jesus is talking about Judas. Um, I'll just read a little bit more so we can get context. Um, yeah, I should read more anyways. Uh, so he, he sits down and as they're eating, verse 21, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, uh, one after the other, Lord, is it I? Or is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man. And he continues talking about Judas. So now let's look at the second passage, which is John thirteen twenty six. John thirteen twenty six says, <clears throat> Jesus answered, it is uh, he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So we're getting the same question. Someone's going to betray me. They go like, Lord, who is it? The difference in verse 25 is it says, so that disciple, probably John here, he's leaning back against Jesus and says to him, Lord, who is it? Um, this might've been a, a separate private conversation in the midst of a larger conversation. Um, and so Jesus might've actually been repeating himself. He says it to the group. It is, here's the group statement. Um, I'm just trying to read the passage in context. He who has dipped his hand in the dish will be with uh, with me, will betray me. And then somebody leans back, says, Lord, who is it? And he says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So there may have been a, a private statement to this disciple, which would be John, uh, and then a public, more broad statement that was more vague, like, well, they all dipped in the dish with me. So who is it? So anyway, that's um, that's my off-the-cuff thought on that one. So hopefully that's something beneficial for you. Um, from Chris Bucklin, ask Mike what base package of logos he has and what and uh, what he would recommend I'm looking to purchase soon. Okay, so I got, logos is the name of the Bible software I use. That That's this software right here, which actually has a lot more to it than what you're seeing on the screen. And I can do some really neat stuff with it. Um, like for instance, here, let me pop this over. Like here's, here's actually, I'm studying, looking at, looking up the Hebrew words and I can look up various definitions of words like the word crushed. Like I told you, I looked this word up. It means to broken in pieces, break in pieces, crush, trample, to be oppressed, um, to be contrite or humbled. 
So then Crushed has those various meanings. Logos has been a very valuable software for me, but I don't know many other softwares. I don't know what base package I have because I got it in 2005, I think it was, and I had a really wonderful deal, and so I, I went ahead and bought it, and I've never paid anything else for it after that because I'm super frugal and cheap. Um, so I don't know what base package I have, but I know it was whichever one would give me at least the exegetical guides and the Greek and Hebrew resources because that was very important to me, and it remains to this day very important to me. So there's my thought on that. Um, I know there's other softwares, Accordance, and I may be giving a, doing a giveaway for a free version of Accordance, which is a Bible study software. I'm going to try and do that next week if I can, if I can figure out how to get all that worked out. Um, okay, Godstream uh, says, Hey Mike, uh, Leighton here, just wondering how to get through to someone who won't listen to fulfilled prophecy. Um, good question. I don't know. Um, let me say this. People are random and weird, right? The you can you can give someone evidence and arguments and good reason to believe, and it doesn't mean that they'll change their mind, and it doesn't mean that they'll even listen to the end of your sentence, um, or the beginning of your sentence. You know what I mean? Like you can't force. I don't see how you force anybody to do anything. Um, I think it helps build a bridge if you're really you really care about the person. I mean, and I, I really do try to honestly care about the people that I'm talking with and talking to, so I'm not just arguing with them. If they can see that compassion, not fake love, but actual compassion in your eyes, in your heart, in your words, then that can make maybe make them more willing to listen. But if they're not interested in fulfilled prophecy at all, then perhaps talk about talk to them about something else. I mean, Christianity is true from so many different directions. I mean, I don't have a problem talking with them about their longing for God, about their need for, for the forgiveness of their sins, moral issues that um, God has placed that moral awareness in their heart. Wonderful thing to talk about, um, um, to talk about the transformation in your life. Like, you know that person, consider what, what angle, you know, which of the many truths can I bring to them that might make a difference? Those are some, some thoughts for you. But in the end, there's no, there's no pat answer uh, for those things. And I, don't at all deny or discount the fact that there's a work of the Holy Spirit in the person's life to draw them to him. And so pray for them um, and pray that God would do that. Uh, Tom Sawyer is uh, asking a question here. Mike, how is Hosea? Oh, by the way, hi, Leighton. I just want to say hi. I, I know who you are, buddy. <laughs> um, Mike, how is Hosea, this is from Tom, 11.1 about the Messiah, according to Matthew 2.15, if the passage is about Israel and does not seem messianic at all in context? Okay, I love this question um, because I'm going to share with you guys what I think is um, stuff we need to know when we're dealing with prophecy and sharing prophecy with people. So here's Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Right now, this seems to be about Israel, right? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. The, verse 2 is definitely about the same group as verse 1, and that wouldn't be Jesus because Jesus, it's not like he went sacrificing to Baals. Then Matthew, now some are like, Mike, what are you doing? <laughs> um, I'm reading the text and I'm letting it say what it says. Matthew 2.15, and this is where... Um, Herod is, is slaughtering the infants in Bethlehem, and it says, And he rose, verse 14, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea 11.1 seemed, I mean, on face value, unlike Isaiah, unlike Psalm 22, right? This seems like it was just about Israel. 
Um, how can we say that that's about Jesus? Oops, there we go. I think here we have to understand, and I'm going to do a, a study on this in my uh, my Sunday night service, where, which I load usually load up on Mondays, on Jesus in the Old Testament, on how the word fulfilled is used in the book of Matthew. I'm going to just give you a study on that topic. Um, but consider this. There are, don't think of prophecy as being like a, like a one-trick pony, right? Prophecy is... Cl- always clear, like with Isaiah, you know, or, or, or Ezekiel 26, like these clear specific prophecies that then get fulfilled by specific clear events. There's other types of things prophetically used in the scripture. And sometimes it's typology or foreshadowing. And sometimes it's simply the fact that all scripture speaks of Christ. And I think Matthew is speaking from that perspective. Matthew knows what Hosea 11.1 is about. It's talking about Israel, but Jesus comes as the fulfillment of scripture in general. And so he is using the word fulfilled in a much looser generic sense than we usually use it in our way of speaking. And if you read the word fulfilled in Matthew and you realize, like I would never use Hosea 11.1 as evidence for the Bible being God's word, but I would use it as Jesus in the Old Testament. Once you realize that the Bible is God's word and Jesus did fulfill the Bible, then you could go and see all these pictures and all these types. That is a massively important issue when dealing with um, um, sharing prophecy and answering objections. Um, I think very important issue to get down. So good, good question. Thank you, Tom, for asking it. I hope I explained it well to you. I think Matthew did, did justice to Hosea 11.1 as long as you realize um, typological foreshadowing and things like that. And, and by the way, this is not a new, a new Christian idea. Um, uh, the, even, even the Talmud and even ancient rabbinical sources say that the entire Old Testament is all about Messiah. All of it is about Messiah. This, these are non-Jesus-believing groups of, who were saying this stuff. And so that was already believed even at the time of Jesus. So uh, number seven, question number seven from the vegan Christian. Question, can you do more atheist response videos in the future? Yes. And I will. Um, I don't know exactly. If you guys want to send me, um, probably the easiest way to send me a video to maybe respond to might be on Twitter. Um, because YouTube, it, I don't even get to read all the comments sometimes because there's just too many. But um, but yeah, I, I can and I'd be very happy to do more atheist response videos. I just don't want to only do that. So I, I like moving back and forth. Uh, number eight, question from Rock and Roll. Um, how can an atheist argue about a God they do not believe exists? Isn't that a contradiction? How can an atheist make an argument using a Bible they do not believe well, I mean, they can argue, like, I'll put it this way. I, I would disagree with that one, rock and roll. I would say that, for instance, I believe that Vishnu does not exist, and I can argue about whether Vishnu exists. And that's, I think, a legitimate, intelligent, thoughtful thing to do. And I think an atheist who thinks God does not exist is logically okay arguing about that, you know? Um, uh, I'm trying to avoid the presuppositional issue right now. <laughs> But, but I think that that's not an issue. The way you worded your question, I, I don't have a problem with that personally. Um, and how can they make an argument using a Bible they don't believe? Um, well, I mean, I don't see how they can make a moral argument against God with the Bible. I think that that's, that's I think it's, I know it's, I know it's really common and it's very powerful. I think it's ultimately silly though for an atheist to do such a thing. Um, but of course they have to, you know, talk about the Bible in order to evaluate what they think about it. And then um, a question from Kaylin Van Conant. Uh, what is the minimum requirement to meet when proving prophecies referred to in the outro? Um, that's a good question. Okay, so 
um, you're, you're speaking of Arn Ra in that in that outro I played twice. He says, you know, nothing even reached the minimum requirement for prophecy to be fulfilled. But through his video, he doesn't really give a minimum requirement. He does give a couple requirements. He says the prophecy has to have a time indicator, and he says the prophecy has to be clear, so it can't be super vague. Um, but I think that, um, for one, I think that some prophecy is very vague. I would not use that to prove the Bible. I would just be like, once you've proven the Bible, let's look at these prophecies to see what, what God's telling us. Other prophecies are very clear. Those are the ones I would use to prove the Bible. But saying it has to have a time indicator, I think time indicators like has to happen by a certain time. That's smart. It's helpful. It's good. But requiring that is artificial, unfortunately. Um, it's okay to have a prophecy that, that doesn't say when it'll happen, but says what will happen. As long as the thing that'll happen is not so generic that it will happen eventually anyways. So those are my thoughts on those questions. And, um, and hey, thank you guys for coming out. Um, it's been fantastic. I, I can't believe how many um, people are coming out to be part of this stream. And I appreciate it. And Aaron Ra, if you have, you know, if you want to interact with me, whether it's, um, uh, I don't know, in what capacity. I'll be honest, Aaron, I, I haven't seen you. I have to watch you interact with, with people to know if I'd want to have you on my YouTube channel. Because I like to know the kind of person I'm bringing on. And I haven't seen enough of that. But I'm open to the idea, at least. And I'm definitely open to hearing what you have to say in response to this, if you have anything to say in response to it. I just think you were factually wrong about a lot of things you said. And if nothing else, if you could stop saying them, that would be fantastic. <laughs> that, would be, that would be great. Um, to at least in the, in the cause of truth, stop. You know, that would be the thought. So thanks guys so much for joining me tonight. I've had a fantastic time and we plan on doing it again. Live stream every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Um, in California time, which is like Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Time, whichever one I'm in, depending on what time of year it is. And so, yeah, um, God bless you guys. Thanks, AJ, for being there and uh, taking care of the live stream and love, just love doing this. Love that you guys are interested about these things. Very exciting. God is good. Prophecy is actually real, and um, we have good reason to believe the Bible, even if we aren't aware of it. <laughs> All right, have a good night.